0: Well, beloved, grab your uh, copy of God's Word and turn in it to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus. We will reside in chapter 8 this morning, Exodus chapter 8. This morning we continue, of course, as we picked up last week, our study in Exodus. And this section here, we began it last week, this section that's most famously known as the Plague Accounts. The plague accounts, the signs and wonders, here it is, for the purpose of knowing God. For the purpose of knowing God. Remember, God said, chapter 7, verse 17, By this, Pharaoh, by these, by this, you shall know that I am the Lord. This is how you'll know. Remember in Exodus 5, verses 1 to 2, what was Pharaoh's confession? His boastful confession, who is the Lord? I don't know who the Lord is. Who is this Lord? And that confession by Pharaoh, the table setter for all that we have begun to see and will see in the weeks ahead. We also noted that Pharaoh is not the only one who does not know the Lord. This is how the word of God is ever relevant. It's a living word, always relevant, always penetrating, always needed, always applicable. We consider this morning in our times, as we've expressed in many ways already, the countless, the countless today that do not know the Lord. Is that not true? Countless. It seems like we can't uh, do enough measuring. There is no measure to count. The many, it seems, that are growing that don't know the Lord. And here it is, beloved, not just the outwardly defiant like Pharaoh. I mean, maybe we can count those the outwardly defined. What we're talking about, those passively resisting, those shrugging their shoulders as we saw Pharaoh do last week, those still doing their own thing, saying, Thank you, God, but no thanks. Seeking knowledge and power everywhere else but where it truly resides. These are those that don't know God. And where does that power reside? In the great I am. That, again, is the main point of all that we are seeing and will see in these chapters. As we return to them today, let me remind you of the framework, some very important introductory matters we talked about last week, and just a quick recap before we dive back in to the second, third, and fourth plagues today. Number one is the encounter. Remember the encounter. Not Moses versus Pharaoh, not Israel versus Egypt. Those are bit parts, bit players. No, this encounter is between whom? Yahweh the God of Israel and the gods of Egypt that's the encounter which we commented on last week is really not an encounter at all the real versus the unreal two is the idea of plagues remember church these are not natural occurrences the text allows you for absolutely no scientific explanation it just astonishes me as I'm studying this book and this account How even those that you'd be shocked with want to try and rationalize what happened. Well, you know, the silt around that region in the Nile, I mean, it could be really bloody and there's the swarm of these things this particular time of the year. The account, the text itself gives you no room for rational explanations. That's the point. This is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. More so, finger of God, plagues from God as judgment on a ruler and a nation, here it is, that deny him. Judgment on one that would openly say, I do not know God, I do not know who he is. And God says, okay, by this you will know who I am. Three, the plague, we talk about the ten plagues and we're studying them, but there is a plague that's a spine throughout all the plagues, and we know this well, the plague of unbelief. This is the plague of unbelief that permeates the text. Westmount, what is most astounding in these accounts? Astounding is not the signs and wonders of God. That's not what's so astounding. You know you're God, don't you? You are redeemed because of the supernatural event of the resurrection. That's not astounding that God can pause natural laws and do whatever he wills. That's not astounding to the Christian, and at least it shouldn't be. He is God and God alone. What is most astounding is Pharaoh, front row seat to all that's going on here, and yet still, still with that front row seat, he is in unbelief. Now, that reality, Christian, we might say is also a check for us. We too, as much we stand as products of a supernatural God and resurrection and all of that, we too, though, live in this life. We're assaulted with earthly reason every day. As such, we too, beloved, are on warning as we study these plagues. I need to say this for all of us, myself included. Unbelief is not just an unbeliever thing. Can I say that again? Unbelief is not just an unbeliever thing. I know many of you wrestle with unbelief. Like the father in Mark 9, Lord, I believe. Here's my son. He needs help. Lord, I believe. But God, help my unbelief. I think we resonate with that. We need to examine our hearts, beloved church, even in the face of God revealed, even in the face of a text that you might say, I know very well. I know the plague accounts. This study, I pray, maybe with fresh minds, eyes, hearts, these acts of God in Exodus given Christian also to you today so that by this you shall know, that you shall be reminded, that you shall never forget that he is the Lord. That's why these are given, that you would know God alone. And I would submit to each one of us, we desperately need that reminder today, don't we? that we would know that he is God alone. With that then, let us return to the scene in Pharaoh's court here. That's where we left off. Last time we witnessed the first plague, that of the Nile turning to blood. One thing we need to note right off the top today is that the first plague is the only one, just a little detail for you, it's the only one in which Pharaoh is completely unfaced. The first plague is the one where he's just unfazed. Look at chapter 7, verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt, remember, he calls them in after the Nile turns to blood. They did the same thing by their, secrets heart, or by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And then look at this, verse 23. Pharaoh did what then? Turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. Pharaoh takes nothing to heart. As he heads in, he's unfazed. Now, remember, his people aren't. Look at verse 24. They're feverishly digging for subterranean water. They're digging along the Nile for water to drink because they couldn't drink blood water, of course. That silence, though, by the leader, the shrug of the shoulders, might have cut it for this first plague, remember? But no more. You won't see that anymore. You're going to see Pharaoh with a pulse in some way, even if it's a rebellious pulse for the ones that remain. Amazingly, with that defiance, though, and we need to note this time and again through this account. With that defiance, it is stunning, equally stunning. God grants mercy. We as onlookers want to look at this and say, you know, Pharaoh, you're the last one that deserves a break, let alone ten. But that's what he gives over and over. God gives to the rebellious. Beloved, can I just pause for it? What hope is that? To get 10 chances for the most rebellious, stubborn heart? How much more for you and I? That's the mercy of your God. He is long-suffering. It's just so encouraging. Our God is a merciful God. And look, even as Pharaoh's silence deafeningly continues through the beginning of chapter 8. Look at chapter 8 verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh. Why is he sending him again? Because Pharaoh hasn't listened. So we know Pharaoh is still defiant. Even with that, God, as we'll see, offers not one, but two, but three more, even in just this one chapter, chances to Pharaoh. And as the chapter opens, verse 1, We need to note two things. Let's read this first verse and note two things. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord. Here it is again. Let my people go, that they may serve me. You are likely observing two things immediately. One of them is old, something old, and one is something new. First, let's deal with something old, and it's this, Pharaoh is still hardened, hence the command of God. Do you see that? In fact, we'll see that pattern repeated today throughout all of today and the plague accounts. More plagues, more hardening. It's almost becoming mathematic at this point, and we'll see that over and over. But that's something old. Did you catch something new in that first verse? Look at the end of verse 1. Let my people go. Why? That they may serve me. God's purpose for these plagues to Pharaoh, did you catch it, is that by this, by this, He would know God, and we've talked about that. But even more, if you think about God's miraculous work for those not knowing him, right? there's more going on here than just those that don't know God. Look, there is a purpose in God's miraculous work for those that do. Do you see that? This is not just all of these signs and wonders for the unbeliever. No, there's something more going on here. God says, let my people go, Pharaoh. Because, so that they may serve me. Beloved, God's redemption, here it is, God's redemption is never just to free us onto ourselves. I've talked about the get out of jail free card. How many, it pains me. It's just, I'm free, and I can go and live I want, and there's some idea of freedom, and freedom in God, it's just, I'm free to do whatever I want. That's not freedom, and in fact, that's not freedom you actually really want. You're not free to roam free. This Bible leaves you nothing with that. Again, our brother Jerry has been taking us through this. Is a book that talks about the purpose of the church. Let me remind you of Ephesians 2, where he left us off. Verse 10, after that great gospel passage in 1 through 9, here is your purpose in verse 10. Someone was asking me about this just this morning too. This is, this is the purpose of the Christian Verse 10, Ephesians 2, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What you're seeing here is a picture of that. Let my people go so that they can serve me, so that they can work for me. Not work, as Jerry reminded us, it earns us anything, but free to demonstrate that they're my people, redeemed and free in the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? That's what's going on here. God says, let my people go so that they can serve me. More on this as we dive deeper into this chapter. So we'll come back to that. But it frames our study today. However, now we continue with those that do not know God. Those that do not know God. That's been our study. And our first point today returns to that. We look at the plea of not knowing God. The plea of not knowing God. Return to the scene and the context in the second plague. Follow along with me in verse 1, and we'll read right through to verse 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Verse 2 But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom. And on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. Wow. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. The magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Because of Pharaoh's ongoing refusal, do you see that? God unleashes another miraculous sign. By the way, just so clear in the text, isn't it? God tells Aaron, right? Put out your hand, your staff. There's no doubt about where this is coming from. Yeah, not natural events. And this time, where Pharaoh might have been able to turn his face with the first plague, this... Plague is very much in his face. Do you see that? A deluge of frogs. Now, a brief word about frogs, because we must. It's in the text. Before we comment on the text, we've mentioned how this encounter is really one between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. We've commented on that a number of times. And as such, each one of these plagues, in some way, either explicitly or implicitly, is an indictment of a condemnation, I would say this, a humiliation against the so-called Egyptian gods. Do you see what Yahweh is doing here? He's judging them. We're really going to see this today. For example, last week, talked about the Nile, the spirit of the Nile god, Hapi, H-A-P-I. He was the one in view, Pharaoh likely going out to worship him by the river, and hence, taking that spirit of the Nile that would give water and life, turning it around and say, he'll give you blood. He'll give you blood. So the revered river, giving life, giving water, was now giving death, blood. But well, with this second sign, God plagues Egypt with frogs. And the same dynamic is in play here. The ancient Egyptians, I know this is hard to believe, they revered the frog. They revered, the fro- they revered many animals, but the frog was one for sure. The frog's presence indicated blessing. It meant that the flooded Nile, so the Nile would flood in season and then the waters would recede. If the land was fertile and you had that nice marsh and the fertile ground, you would hear what? To the Egyptian, maybe not to you, the pleasant croaking of the frog. That was the blessing of the gods. The frog represented the blessing of the gods. The land was fertile. We were blessed. It was fruitful. Yes, the frog was a revered animal, again, like many, and we're going to look at others later on. And here it is, so revered in ancient Egypt, ancient civilizations. You killed a frog, the punishment, get this, was death. If you were known to be one to kill a frog, the punishment would be death. Sure, that pains little boys around the world to hear that, but that was the ancient Egyptian way do not kill the frog. Now, you think about this idea of deifying an animal, deifying something, not worthy of deity, of course. We think about the frog being deified here, just like the Nile was. And the Egyptian god in view here was Heket, H-A-Q-T, the fertility god of Egypt. In fact, hieroglyphics depict a woman's body with a frog's head. That's because the frog, remember, was this goddess of fertility. In fact, they believed that the frog assisted childbirth. Now, just picture what Yahweh is doing here. You look for the blessing, even offspring, right, to come upon you. I will deluge you with something very different to offspring. Amazing what God is doing here in judgment. Now, don't miss this. Don't miss this. Again, God takes the object of worship, like the Nile previously, and here the frog, and with it, the object of worship, and he chastens and he judges with it. Do you see that? That's what Yahweh is doing. You bow down to this. You venerate this. You make this everything. Well, I'm going to take that instrument and I'm going to judge you with it. I'm going to judge you with it. And that brings us to a few important comments here. This is key. Number one, you think about worshiping frogs and rivers. Reminds us our God is a jealous God. Our God is a jealous God. He will take our idols and he will discipline us with them. I, I don't even need to say, I don't need an excursus right now to tell you all, you know what I'm talking about. He will take your idol and he will chasten you with it. Two, God gets our attention. In fact, let me add a modifier here. God always gets our attention. With blood in the Nile, Pharaoh looked and shrugged. But do you see this, beloved? He can't do that here. You, you can't do that here. Why? Look again at verse 3 and, and paint the picture in your mind. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants and your people. And if that wasn't enough, listen to this, into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and your people and on all your servants. Where are the frogs? Everywhere. Pharaoh, you can't shrug your shoulders this time. They're right in your wheelhouse, right in your home, in your bed, your bowls. In fact, they're on your body. Beloved, whether believer or unbeliever, market, God always gets our attention. I need to stress that. God always does. It can be widespread attention, like a tragedy, a natural disaster, of course, a pandemic, or it can be personal, like a diagnosis, a betrayal. Or a financial failure. God always gets our attention. However, I know what you're thinking. Just because God always gets our attention doesn't mean we always respond to him. Is that not true? He gets our attention all right. And listen, we respond to something, but most often, sadly, we don't respond to him. Yes, there is acknowledgement often for many like Pharaoh here that there's a problem. Like frogs in your bed. you would have to be something grievously wrong to not recognize I have a problem. I have a problem. But note where Pharaoh turns. He acknowledges the problem, likely. But look at verse 7. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. This brings us to another point. Church, this deserves comment again. We cannot do what God does. We talked about this a bit before last week. We cannot do what God does. The magicians are called in again, and that's Pharaoh's response, right? What's his response when God gets his attention? I need clever humans. Dude, do I have any clever humans here that can solve this problem in an earthly fashion? But like the blood river, they may imitate and note it. Those clever magicians, those conjurers, they may imitate, but they never what? Fix the problem. See? They never fix the problem. In fact, they're certainly good at making more blood and making more frogs. And, I, and bear with me, I just can't help with this image. Is anyone standing there saying, enough with the frogs? Magicians, solve the problem. Solve the problem. Don't make more frogs because they're in my kneading bowls. I don't need more frogs. What I need you to do and what you're saying today, when you turn to your holy God, I need a solution to my core soul issue. God, take my fears of everything horizontal and make them one vertical fear. We need solutions to problems, not conjurers that make it worse, which is exactly what you see today. That's the picture. Yes, for all of Pharaoh's power, it only makes the problem worse. Beloved, don't miss this key relevant text. Is this not so palatable today? I'll bring in all the cleverness, and what am I going to do? Throw kerosene on this fire. Amazing how relevant the word of God is. But note at Pharaoh, his power is impotent to cure what plagues him in his nation. It's impotent. Now, Pharaoh can deny that once and have his servants feverishly digging for water. But he can't deny frogs in his bowl and in his bed. And here is where we see another characteristic of those that do not know God. In some way, in some small, reluctant, insincere way, here it is, they plead with God. What do you mean by that? Well, the text will show us. Look at verse 8. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord know that reality it's true here's pharaoh pleading the text says it tells you a couple of very important things let's note them one pharaoh's plea comes immediately after what in the text in the sacred text what is in verse 7 the magicians supposedly called in to do something and in verse 8 what do you have pharaoh pleading for relief that tells you something right off the bat human cunning again cannot fix this pharaoh recognizes if nothing else here this is key God getting our attention, getting global attention. Pharaoh recognizes here with the juxtaposition of verse 7 and 8, Pharaoh needs someone outside of himself to fix the problem. Do you see that? He recognizes, I've given it the best I've got with my conjurers, but I need someone outside myself to fix the problem. That's one. Two, even the most hard-hearted will plead. It's true it's true even the most hard-hearted will plead now listen pleading is not always on hands and knees in desperation i want to disarm a bit of that maybe stereotype or picture that you have pleading is not always begging right on hands and knees listen you read this account and you see the word plead there and you don't even get the faintest hint that that's how pharaoh's posture is is that not true You don't get the sense that Pharaoh, especially in the second plague, is on his hands and knees. We have eight plagues to go. Pleading, then, often, is like what you see here. Here it is, and you know this. Calling in a favor to the godly person you know. Do you know what I'm talking about? Let me call up the spiritual person I know. Let me call up the, the spiritualist, the godly. Christian, you know the call from the unbelieving friend whose their world has been turned upside down. Plead and pray for me. Have you been there? That's what pleading can look like. And here, when Pharaoh's world is turned upside down, let me put a call in to that guy, Moses. He seems to have a hookup with Yahweh. You know what? Plead for me, Moses, because I've got frogs in my bed. Plead for me. That is an acknowledgement that their life, like Pharaoh, is upside down. The mere fact that someone says to you, here it is, beloved. Here's practicality. When an unbeliever says to you, pray for me, they acknowledge, they don't respond to God maybe, but they acknowledge, and this is fertility, they acknowledge that their life needs help and that they can't fix it. So when they say to you, pray for me, that's what they're saying. And there's also an acknowledgement, here it is, as we just said, they're powerless to fix it. Even the most proud, when they're forced to plead, recognize, I can't fix my problems. Yet, how often is it just reactionary like Pharaoh here? That phone call to you and Pharaoh here to Moses, as we'll see. How often, like Pharaoh, are promises made in that pleading that are not kept? Look at the end of verse 8. Plead for me, and then here's the promise in his desperation, and then I will let the people go. Pharaoh's insincerity, by the way, all the over the next few verses. Look at this. Continue in ch- uh, verse 9. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I'm to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. What a courtesy Moses gives verse 10. And he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say so that you may know our God. Verse 11, the frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. What an amazing encounter. Just the way Moses handles this, that's a separate lesson for us. Moses' courtesy in verse 9, did you catch it? Be pleased. Be pleased to command me, Pharaoh. In other words, Moses says, just name a day and time. That's how gracious our God is. Name a day and time for it to stop. That's how merciful God is. Whether to taunt or test Moses, we don't know. Either way, Pharaoh says, okay, tomorrow. And it's amazing, mercifully what happens. The frogs stop tomorrow another sign if you will look at verse 12 so moses and aaron went out from pharaoh and moses cried to the lord about the frogs moses keeps his promise as he had agreed with pharaoh verse 13 and the lord did according to the word of moses the frogs died out in the houses the courtyards and the fields and they grand gathered them together in heaps and the land stank god grants relief do you see that moses keeps his promise god keeps his promise The odor remains, for sure, that's very clear in verse 14, but the plague is gone. Do you see that? The plague is gone. And naturally, you would say at this point, okay, Pharaoh, about that promise, do you remember when you were pleading? You made a promise, Pharaoh, can we come back to that? You pled with God, he delivered, and now about that promise you made, look at verse 15, when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite. We could say breathing room, that's what the original word means, space and room. When he saw that there was room, when he could breathe again, when he had an empty bowl, an empty bed, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Westmount, we're only two plagues into this account, and the pattern has already been established. Do you see that? We're only two plagues in, and this is clear how this is going down. But here, don't miss one key addition. Who hardens Pharaoh's heart here. Look at the text. Who's the agent of that hardening now that we come to in the text? Look at verse 15. It is Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh is the one hardening his own heart. Yes, God hardens as he wills, but the responsibility to respond to God is still on us. And Westmount noted Pharaoh is the one responsible for not listening here. The text again gives us no other room. Pharaoh's on the hook. He's getting warned. He's disobeying. He's the one on the hook. Those that do not know God, even after pleading to God, are in the same boat. They're always accountable. Every creation, every human is accountable to a holy God. Yet amazingly, Pharaoh lives to see another day. And I say, how incredible is this? Pharaoh lives to see another day. It should be done now, right? And all the more, Pharaoh, you had your chance. Even more, Pharaoh, you made a promise and you failed to keep it. Pharaoh, you lied. Even much more, that was said against God and his servants keeping his promise and sparing you. Your lie, your disobedience is all the more stark. God, of course, in justice and mercy, does not allow Pharaoh to continue that way. The account continues with another plague in our next point. Not only the plea of not knowing God, we're going to see now the powerlessness of not knowing God. Look at verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with a staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. From frogs to gnats. Gnats, of course, tiny, very tiny insects with very irritating and painful stings. For any civilization, by the way. Now, you might ask, after the pattern of the Egyptians worshipping the Nile and frogs, you might ask, how could anyone, ancient Egypt or not, worship a tiny, annoying insect? Well, they don't here. That doesn't mean they don't worship insects, which we'll get to in a moment. Here, no, it's not about some Egyptian nat god that's in view. No, here it is, and this is where the text is lovely. It's where the gnats originate. Don't miss this when you read the plague accounts. Look carefully. Look at verse 16. Moses, Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike what? The dust of the earth. So what? That it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. Do you see that? What's in view here? The dust. And you say, well, what's so special about dust? Well, everything to an Egyptian. Everything. The very desert itself. They were surrounded by desert. And what happens? Right With this ancient Egyptian civilization with many, surrounded by immense things, they turned to worship the created versus the creator. And of course, they deified, they made it a god, the very desert, the very dust itself. Yes, we can say they had a god for that. Set. Set is the god of the desert, the god of the dust. The ancient Egyptians deified the very ground. Isn't that astonishing? The ground that they walk on, they worshipped as god incredible. And here God has Moses and Aaron strike the very dust itself. Don't miss what Yahweh is doing here. You want to worship that ground? I'm going to strike it and watch what comes out from it. This is judgment as if to say, you look to the might of grains of sand for power. You look to the barren desert as if it's some sort of God. I will show you true power that comes out of that. And only from my finger. Let me turn the power of the dust against you. And more, remember, these are increasingly intensifying. Things are ramping up. As such, let me show you, Pharaoh, how truly powerless you are. Let me show you. Look at verse 18. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Here it is. The magic spells are over for Pharaoh's magicians. It's done. They are impotent. This is glaringly so. Now, whether they didn't have enough time to prepare a nat show or they just realized the scope and power of such a miracle, we don't know. We just don't know. What we do know is that here in this third plague, and here it is, human cunning is done. You see that? Human cleverness is done. And not only are they done faking or whatever they're doing... Note their confession in verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the magicians, not Pharaoh, note it. The magicians say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. Now, before we rush to the conclusion that, well, at least the magicians know God, before we do that, we need to consider a few things right in the verse. First, look at the word for God there, the finger of God. That is Elohim. It's not Yahweh, and that's very important. Yahweh, the revealed name of God from Exodus 3. This is Elohim. Now, Elohim has many things that I could talk about today that are fascinating. Elohim, even in itself, in its form, is a word of plurality, right? It talks about there being many, but often it's used for God as one. There's lots of stuff there. But what's interesting here is that the magicians are using Elohim as a general statement of deity. This is really important. In fact, it's fascinating they choose that word. They said, this is the finger of Elohim not Yahweh, which itself is interesting against all the gods that Egypt would claim. Did you note that? They're claiming deity when they would profess to have deity. They say this is deity at work. Here you have the magicians confessing, look, the finger of gods. This is the finger of gods. And what's so stunning about that? You might say to the magicians, well, let me ask you something, conjurer. What was that that you just did before? If you're claiming that this is the finger of gods, then what was that? Here, you are actually magician confessing to something truly miraculous going on. That's what you're doing. Also, we remember that this declaration is from the magicians. Whatever they have confessed, which is likely just true power at work, that's what you're seeing with the magicians. They're saying, look, something big and powerful is going on here. Whatever it is they confess, they're not Pharaoh. Pharaoh's response is stated bluntly. Look at the end of verse 19 but Pharaoh's heart was what hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said Pharaoh's heart remains rock hard. And we have the reminder here that the hardened heart is exactly as God predicted. It would be chapter four, chapter seven. Isn't this how God said it would all go down and we're seeing it unveiled exactly. So Pharaoh remains hardened even after his own powerlessness is exposed. It's incredible. Now by any of our measures, any of our human measures right three strikes and what you're out pharaoh it's done enough is enough pharaoh what, what are you trying to prove well pharaoh's rejection may continue but again we say this amazingly so does god's mercy god offers pharaoh another chance to repent yet the stakes get higher with each plague it gets higher and higher and we learn more of those that do not know god and our last point today Not just the plea and the powerlessness, finally, the place of not knowing God. Look at verse 20. The place of not knowing God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. A couple of things that I trust your keen eye have noticed in that one verse. One, did you notice that Pharaoh is back to his early morning worship routine? Did you see that? Isn't this is incredible? Pharaoh's like, I've got to get back to Hapi. What place does he return to? Don't miss this, beloved. This unbeliever, this hardened heart, after all the carnage in his life, goes back to the false worship. The false worship that's let him down. The instrument that's turned to blood. What does he do after all of that? After three strikes, he turns back to false worship. A hardened heart always returns to the false well. Heading out to the Nile riverbank, very likely then throwing whatever down, drinking whatever water to worship the spirit of the Nile. After three increasing and in intensity plagues on his nation, this is just nothing short of incredible. God has shown mercy and favor on Pharaoh in his hard-heartedness, yet this, note this, Isaiah 26.10 says this, if favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. That turns a lot of the social justice worries upside down, I think, right now. What do you mean, if favor is shown to the wicked? If there ever was a living picture of that, it's Pharaoh here in Isaiah 26.10. It is Pharaoh. In other words, here it is. It is not through, or we would say only, favor or relief that the wicked learn righteousness. That's not the instrument of deliverance. We see that here because you would look at this account and say, Pharaoh, favor equals you turning to God. Beloved, I know you have experiences in your life where you've experienced this. You say, wow, that was a good deed. How could you not recognize God? Here we see Pharaoh doing exactly the same. How many beloved good deeds are done to the wicked, the unbelieving yet nothing. It's the order of the day. That's the picture of Pharaoh here. All of God's relenting, all of his mercy, his kindness, even his courtesy through Moses to limit the plagues, to end it on Pharaoh's terms tomorrow. Yet Pharaoh heads out this early morning after three plagues to worship. Happy incredible. Secondly, did you also notice the purpose of deliverance for God's people stated again? This is also building. Look at the end of verse 20. Let my people go that they may serve me. There it is again. A purpose in redemption for God's people to serve their God. Let us, Westmount, not forget that. Here stated again and here with a warning. Look at verse 21. Or else, in other words, Pharaoh, you don't do this. This is what will happen. If you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. God orders another swarming plague. This one flies. And by the way, swarms is the key word there. It refers to... Insects likely, even small creatures of various kinds. That's what the word means in there. In fact, the word flies isn't even in the original language. It's just swarms. Psalm 78 and, and others refer to it as flies. But right here, it's just swarms. That's your picture. Pharaoh, I'm going to send swarms on you. It tells that this plague might have been a mixed insect back, And where they didn't deify the gnat... They did consider other insects as gods. They had a chit, the god of the fly. This is incredible, a god of a fly. And also kefir, a sacred flying beetle god. I mean, it's incredible to read these things. This is who they worshipped. Flies and beetles were deified in Egypt. In fact, archaeologists tell us... if you don't believe that, archaeologists tell us that no insect, when they do their digging and they, and they pull up what they do from Egypt, listen to this, no insect or no animal for that matter is more revered or represented in those tombs than the beetle. It's incredible. You have human beings with beetle heads, all kinds of effigies of beetles, coins, scarabs, depictions on walls, tombs filled with these beetles. Again, God here taking their sacred things and using them as chastisement against them. And here we need to note the pervasiveness. Not just a thing, but swarms of it. Swarms of it. Verse 21, the swarms are everywhere. Now in this fourth plague, I want us to see a parameter that God outlines here. So important. Look at verse 22. But on that day, so the day that the swarms come, I will set apart the land of Goshen. Where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there. Wow, that's protection. That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. With these swarms of flies, God says there will be a distinction in Egypt. God says, on the day of this plague, here it is, I will set apart my people in Goshen. You say, what's Goshen? Think back to Genesis 45, 46. Do you remember when uh, Joseph, uh, Pharaoh allowed Joseph through him to bring his family back to Egypt out of safety, right, to, to get food, to be protected? They settled in an area of Egypt known as Goshen. And lo and behold, here we see it in Exodus. This is their residence. It's still here. God says, with this plague in that region where my people are, where my people are, no swarm shall go there. Note it, my people will be untouched. Amazing. Even stronger than that, look at verse 23. God says, I will put a division between my people and your people. That is not only, beloved, clear separation, not just here are my people, the Israelites, and they look like this with this uniform, and here are the Egyptians, they look like that, and I'm just kind of parsing and separating. No, note the word division there. Look at it. Some of you have a footnote in your Bible that says that word refers to redemption. Do you see that? I will put a redemption. In other words, God says, I will set a redemption between my people and your people. Here it is, this is separation, this is division with implication. This is to be set apart for the purpose of salvation. Do you see that? This is loaded. There is a picture, there is a principle here, beloved, for all of us that are his. Redemption, salvation, again, that is the place for God's people. Can you nestle there this morning? Your place to be set apart is redemption and salvation. Our great hope today, being a child of God, being a believer in him is not a label. It's not a survey box. It's not a quirk. It's not a thing you do. Being set apart by God, chosen by him means action. Do you see that? It means redemption, salvation. It means not just being unspoiled by flies, verse 22, but it means being saved. It means verse 24. Look at it. Verse 24. It means being redeemed from ruin. Salvation means you are not destroyed. Salvation means you are not destroyed. Redemption means that you are spared from all that we deserve. Listen, we all deserve blood and frogs and gnats and flies. We all deserve utter ruin like Pharaoh. And we all deserve worse the very wrath of God, not just in Exodus, but in Revelation. That's what we deserve. But redemption means, beloved, you are spared. God sets you apart for protection and salvation. Picture that here. That's exactly it. Only those, look at the text. It can't be clearer. Not popular today, but this is what the text says Only those of God are set apart and spared. Do you see that? Only those of God are set apart in Goshen, if you will. That's it. No one else. It doesn't matter the tokens, it doesn't matter all the other things, only those chosen by God, set apart by God. Now the reality of ruin, the increasing desperation, produces three things that we've seen before. As we think about the place for God's people that know God, let's consider the place for those that do not know God. Consider closely this final exchange. Look at verse 25. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, go. Sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said it would not be right to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Here's another one of Pharaoh's conditions. Only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. And Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people, tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh, I love this from Moses, only let not let Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. He just calls them out. You cheated and lied. Just don't do it again. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flash from Pharaoh from his servants and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. So much there we can comment on, but we've commented on it already. Once again, Pharaoh, though, makes a promise. Go, sacrifice, you see that? And it's an empty promise. He promises to do something, but it's empty. Verse 32 proves that. He hardens his heart again. Once again, God's mercy is starkly set against it. Did you notice it in that interchange? You have the mercy of God. That, he, that Moses would even bear with Pharaoh. That he even says to him, don't cheat again. You want to say to Moses, you know he's going to cheat. And of course, God knows he's going to cheat. But he still extends the mercy. Incredible. The back and forth, the mercy of God, as Pharaoh tries to bargain in his pleading, sacrifice uh, in the city. Which, by the way, Moses said would not be right. He's calling him out on everything. Remember, back in Genesis, we talked about this off the top. Genesis 46, to the Egyptians, shepherds were an abomination. As such, you can imagine what sheep were. Probably one of the few animals they actually did disdain, which is ironic as a pagan, the sheep. Didn't want anything to do with the sheep. Moses says, uh, in, in a sense, Pharaoh, come on. We start sacrificing sheep in Egypt. You know how this goes down for us. You know what's going to happen. He says, Okay, well go out, but not very far away. In other words, I still want to be able to grab your collar. Just don't go go out, do your thing, but let me be able to reach you. And God not only bears with that, but look another plea, he tacks this on at the end of verse twenty eight, and plead for me. Plead for me. Oh how the ungodly love their token spiritual insurance. Plead for me. Moses goes, pleads, petitions and prays for this pagan king. And astoundingly again, God does what? He relents. He brings mercy. And verse 32 said against that mercy, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Hardened still, that is the place for Pharaoh and the place for all those who don't know God. Yet that is not the only place for such. This is a little picture, if you will, of a greater story in the Scriptures. This is not a consequence to do what Pharaoh does. A consequence is not just go stand in the corner, Pharaoh, you stubborn child. Just do it. Go stand in the corner, arms crossed. That's not what's going on here. This is a picture of a greater picture in Scripture for the place of people who don't know God. In Genesis 9, it's a flood that covers the earth. In Genesis 19, it's within the walls of a burning, smited city. In number 6, it's an earthquake that opens up and swallows the ungodly. Number 16. In the book of Joshua, it's on a city wall, a fortified power and might of earthly strength, and it crumbles. Jesus called that place the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 25. In the book of Revelation, at the end of all things, it's called the lake of fire, Revelation 20. That is market, friend, market. That is the place for those that do not know God. Eternal separation from God. Church, these plagues are really just a preview, a snapshot of not only what is to come, plagues five through the rest, But it is a snapshot of what is truly to come. What we are barreling toward, and I think all would agree, we're getting there very quickly these days. It's coming. And yet, we can't say this enough in this study, what is truly amazing, what is truly astounding, is not the hardened heart, but the merciful God. Isn't it incredible? We know hardened hearts. We manufacture them. We're good at it. That's not what's astounding. What's astounding is the mercy of God. God gives another chance and another and another and another. If only Pharaoh, you would cry out and repent. God would answer Pharaoh. He would. And we're not just saying that God does. We end with this Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found Call upon him while he is near, while there's still time. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. Thus says the Lord. Father, you are indeed higher, bigger, more mighty, more powerful than us in every possible way. Lord, in fact, we could never possibly quantify or describe how much more you are than us. God, forgive us when we try to play God in this life that you have given to us. God, I pray for all of us, whether rebel or saint, that in some way through these accounts, Lord, we are drawn to you, whether it's the prying open of a hardened heart to be chosen by you, or to the sanctification of those that bow the knee and call you Lord now. Lord, we beg it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.